funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Silver Screen video. It is me, Jonathan, and thankfully, I'm here with my co-host, Jacob, since last week I had to do this without him, and it was not fun. So, Jacob, it is a pleasure to have you back, sir. Yeah, I listened to that, and it sounded like shit, man. I'm not going to lie. Well, <laughs> it wasn't the best. Um <laughs> We'll just say that. I don't I think that was a little harsh out of the gate. Um <laughs> I'm still happy to have you back in spite of that. So uh yeah, it's good to be back. I'm uh, excited for uh, our listeners to hear our episode this week with the one and only Ben Schwartz. Um Now guys, before you say anything, this is not Ben Schwartz who does the show with Thomas Middleditch, who was John Ralphio on Parks and Rec. Let's get that out of the way. Right. He asked to come on and we said, no, we're not, I'm not a big fan of his work. Um, he's not like a director or a writer or a filmmaker or whatever. So like, I don't, I don't give a shit, you know? So yeah, yeah. we told him, let us know when Thomas wants to come on, but we're going to need you to not contact us anymore. <laughs> so instead, uh, in order to get back at that Ben Schwartz, uh, we had the better Ben Schwartz come on. Uh, writer, director, um, you'll you'll hear all about this, uh, all of his uh, uh, his credits and all the cool shit that he's done. Uh, once we get into the episode, yeah, and I'll tell you, this episode was fantastic. It, you know, I I listened to it again when I was editing it, and just hearing all of these because we we get hit with a lot of information, a lot of cool shit. And it was nice to be able to listen to it again because Ben is just full of information about old Hollywood and directors and producers. It was uh, it was quite uh, a joy of an episode uh, for me. This guy knows this guy knows his shit. Definitely one of the uh, one of the more brilliant uh, guests we've had on. Uh, <laughs> of course, no shade to our other guests, I guess. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it was great. We we learned a lot. And had a had a really good discussion about uh, a couple of movies uh, that, frankly, are kind of obscure. Um, so yeah, hopefully you guys will enjoy hearing it. We uh, we were gonna uh, we you know we had our all guest February month. We were gonna you know maybe switch back and do a couple of director episodes for you guys, but we just had uh, too much great content from some of the guests we had on, and so we just decided. Uh, to have another guest episode because we couldn't pass up the opportunity. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. Enjoy, uh, enjoy listening to Ben Schwartz. Yeah. And going back to the joke you just made, I was going to laugh, but I decided to let you hang yourself. Um, our well, other that. Guests, I appreciate that. You're welcome. Our other guests are brilliant. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening, uh, you are brilliant as well, despite what my co-host says. So guys, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, have a lot of heavy hitters coming up. So we're going to hit you with a few more guest episodes before we get back to directing, uh, director episodes. Cause we've got some great shit that we just have to get out real quick though, before we jump to Ben Schwartz, I want to give a shout out. 
we get a lot of messages. We get a lot of emails uh, from people and, and, you know, we respond and we appreciate every one of them that we get. But we got a really thoughtful email from a Ludwig, uh, a German listener. And uh, it was a really thoughtful email, really nice. We appreciate it, Ludwig. We have responded to you, obviously. But a huge shout out to you. He gave us some top 10 list and uh, just a really nice email. So I wanted to uh, give that a shout out and say thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Hell yeah. And if you ever, uh, you know, want to send us a message, uh, yeah, feel free to do that. What is that? What is our email address? Silver screen video podcast. Yeah. Silver screen video podcast at gmail.com. And yeah, that's in the show notes, um, all the time. So guys, you can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, email, hit us up with any list, any of that. We'll be happy to look at it and, you know, kind of talk to you guys and, and uh, just kind of know what you guys are thinking and, and what you like about the episodes or what you would want us to do, things like that. We really appreciate that insight. So um, outside of that, don't forget, we have the Silver Screen Video After Dark. That is our Patreon. You get a bonus episode at, if you join that. And um, yeah, it's just kind of more laid back. We shoot the shit, not as structured or any of that. It's uh it's a lot of fun. I enjoy doing them. I'm not sure about Jacob. He's hit or miss. So um <laughs> Yeah, I but, can take uh, it or leave it, you know. Yeah. So uh anyway, guys, we are excited to bring you Ben Schwartz. We are excited to get some of these guests out this week. We're not even gonna spoil it by telling you who they are. Uh just make sure you tune in. March is gonna be a big month here at the Silver Screen video. Hell um, yeah. Jacob, do you have anything to add? Uh, let's send it to it. Okay. Guys, thanks for listening. Thanks again, Ben, for coming on. You are the better Ben Schwartz. We enjoyed this episode. Hope you guys do too. Folks, our guest this week is a very talented writer and director whose work you can find in The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, and in the latest issue of The Baffler. Please welcome to the show, Ben Schwartz. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Hey, Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's great to have you. And I have to ask you uh, right up front, and I think uh, maybe this might cause some confusion in our listeners, but... This name, Ben Schwartz, that uh, that has to get you in some some sticky situations, I imagine, with uh, the growing fame of the other Ben Schwartz. Yeah, um, well, only on Twitter. It's only oh, on okay. Twitter. Really, hasn't I haven't had? I've only had one meeting where I walked in and it's like, "Hello, you know, meet Ben Schwartz," and the the, the guy sitting behind the desk went, "Oh." <laughs> <You know? laughs> Doesn't happen too much. I say to my manager, just tell them, just make sure it's okay if they want to cancel the meeting, just tell them ahead of time. I don't want to see that look ever again. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, uh, I mean, people, um, it's, it, it's not only the name, I mean, and the other Ben and I both wrote for the Oscars mm-hmm. and we both had a script on the blacklist the same year. Oh boy. Right? And oh, we both wow. worked with, we both worked, uh, with Billy Crystal which uh, right. is weird because I, I feel like Billy just kind of up and left me for a younger Ben Schwartz. It's like a Highlander thing. Yeah, there can only be one. <laughs> <clears throat> so, well, you know, my name, you know, it could be worse. My name could be Louis C.K. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> <you know? laughs>
<laughs> that's true. That would be that would definitely be worse. Um, that means meetings probably would have took a nosedive a couple of years ago. I would imagine if yeah. your name was. <laughs> <laughs> Except in uh, New York, apparently, where he still gets booked. You know? That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me uh, let me ask you about that about the the kind of because you, you've worn a couple of different hats. Um, it, it seems like throughout your career, and one of the more prominent ones, uh, it seems, is as a comedy writer. And you wrote for the um, uh, the eighty fourth Oscars, where Billy Crystal was the host. Um, when the uh, the artist won Best Picture, I believe, and then. Um, mm-hmm. You wrote with David Letterman, I guess. Um, well, how did you uh, how did you get into comedy writing uh, originally? Well, it uh, came out of I'd sold a screenplay a while back, and um, because I met these different development executives over the years, I've sold uh, two screenplays, and one of the development executives I met was Billy Crystal's producer. And uh, she liked my scripts. He didn't think it was right for, you know, for whatever reasons, he didn't want to make the script that she submitted to him. But a couple months after he had read it, um, he announced that he was doing the Oscars. Originally, it was uh, Billy Crystal, or not Billy Crystal, Eddie Murphy that year. Mm. was supposed to do it. And then he decided not to do it when... um, because the producer that year that he wanted to work with was fired. And they just announced that they were going to uh, do it. And she had said to me once, you know, you should write jokes. You should try to, you know, work for Letterman or Leno. And so I never thought about it really, but I asked her if I could submit jokes to them. She said, yes. And so I sent in three pages, three pages of jokes and bits. And he said, yes. And then I called her immediately and said, he knows it's not the other Ben Schwartz, right? I mean, it's like really me. <laughs> it's been going on a while. And yeah, so I still went to the first meeting with all the writers and I was just like, they're going to, this is a mistake and I'll be sent home. But um, no, it was great. And it was uh, from there, I was able to start submitting stuff to like Letterman. And I was never uh, like, in New York on staff at a show, but I was submitting stuff uh, mm. to a producer, Steve Young. And so that's how that started. But I had actually sold the screenplay first. And uh, I had done some rewrite, rewrite work on scripts and then sold the second one. But those scripts, I, I don't think at this point are going to get made. And, uh, you know, I've done a bunch of, as you said, worn different hats as a writer. And, um, yeah, I'm 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 interested about the uh, the screenplay writing in particular um, because I you know you you mentioned you had a screenplay that made the blacklist and had sold a couple. Is that was that kind of your original um, intention as far as like uh, a career as a writer to be a a, a screenplay writer to re- or a screenwriter? I guess I should say. Yes, and those are both comedies that I had, I had written, and um, the. Uh, and I also write a lot about comedy. So joke writing seemed great to me, you know, right. I mean, it seemed like, and I wasn't doing anything else. So it seemed like a great job. Um, so yes, movies, screenplays and screenwriting is what I have always wanted to do and still consider the number one thing I, I want to do. Right. Um, I got to ask you, are there any uh, jokes or bits uh, that made it to the Oscars that year that you uh, are particularly proud of? 
Um, well, the the room of writers created some great stuff. I mean, I don't. Uh, there's only like of things I wrote word for word, one or two jokes, you know. Yeah. But the bits we worked out as a group. Yeah, it was a fun show to do. And if you go on YouTube, you can still see it. That Christopher Guest uh, got Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard and. Um, blanking on the actor's name she's in the american pie movies she's the mom the hot mom yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. but she's in all christopher guest movies anyway we had this idea of uh the idea was that at mgm they discovered the for, first focus group testing that was filmed oh. it was for the wizard <laughs> of oz and they um um uh bob balaban played the focus group tester and he's interviewing this group of people who've just seen The Wizard of Oz for the first time, you know, played by that cast. And so you can you can look it up online. It's it's really funny. Now we didn't they in, wrote all that stuff. Um, it was a premise that we we sort of gave them, but they improvised all that stuff. And it's just hilarious. That kills me every time I see it. Um, that that's really funny. Yeah. Uh, but it was just fun to do. I mean, yeah. and, uh, B- Billy was a fun guy to be around because he's what you think, like if you get a job with a comedian, like what you think it'll be like, like funny person to be around, <laughs> you know, when a lot of times they're not. And um, he likes to be in the writer's room. So it was a great experience. And then a lot of the writers who I was working with were from all of these different shows, like the head writers from Letterman at that time or The Daily Show or so it was, um, you know, uh, my favorite year and it was, it was fun to be there. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's really cool. That's, uh, yeah, I, I always, I like, um, I feel like it's like maybe like a showbiz like trope that like, you know, the, the comedian or whatever that you're going to go write jokes for is like secretly like a monster and, you know, not really fun. Um, yeah. so yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's so cool. That seems like such a great experience. Um, yeah, now he, I, he was he was a he's a good guy and <laughs> slips into those voices he does just because it amuses him. You know? Yeah. So uh, it was it was the most fun I've ever had doing anything in this business. Yeah, that's that that's really cool. Um, so I, I actually I mostly know your work um, kind of as a a journalist slash critic slash uh, just kind of general writer of, of interesting nonfiction. And that's, that's why I had reached out to you originally um, uh, because I thought it would be really um, interesting to talk to. And uh, so, so where did that, where did that kind of come in as your career where you kind of started uh, writing, you know, more kind of general nonfiction? Well, I, oh, it was from suck.com, which was a website that was, very popular like 20 years ago mm. and it was a satirical website but it's also nonfiction. where we did a lot of comedy it's very snarky um anna marie cox uh asked me to write for them she's a uh, pretty well-known pundit and journalist now and uh i met chris layman there who is the editor of the new republic now and as he kind of moved on in his career as an editor at places like book forum and the washington post uh, he, would, he would ask me to do book reviews or I'd pitch him ideas, uh, usually based on, you know, something to do with comedy. 
I was right. most interested in writing comedy. I wrote a lot about comics and cartooning um, and the history of comedy. And so w- as when I started doing that for Suck, I wrote under the name, we all had, you know, pseudonyms. Uh, it was a very, it's like our nerd punk band. Um, so I was Bertolt Blacht. That was the name I picked. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, I wrote, I think, like 20 different things for them, like comics and um essays and uh and so i don't write just about movies but it's just sort of like a number of media usually focused on things that are funny and after that as i said with chris he hired me for a number of different things and um then i just started pitching stuff on my own i mean comics was then kind of a hot topic so you know i could pitch somewhere like vanity fair uh, this idea of doing a story about a New Yorker cartoonist, you know, right. where at the New Yorker, one of my New Yorker pieces was about an ancient comic strip called Gasoline Alley. And Chris Ware is now part of uh, restoring uh, that whole strip and getting it published uh, year by year. They do a volume that's every two years. Right. By Walton Skizix for Gone and Quarterly. And G here is the editor of that. Uh, or he and Chris are co-editors something so you know I wrote about that for them um, and um, that's basically how that started I'm not um, uh, I, I, I don't have like a real like beat like I'm not in like I read about the environment you know <laughs> I'm a crime reporter uh, so like this uh, news story for the baffler is one that actually came out of Something I was writing for Vanity Fair, uh, a different topic, but it ended up with me watching uh, Norma Shearer's Marie Antoinette, uh, which is a movie I would never have thought to watch. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, likewise, Uh, it it seems uh, kind of an obscure work, Um, but yeah, let's let's jump into that because I want to talk about this this article that you've got uh, coming out on the. on the baffler now is it uh, is it going to be on the website because we'll be releasing this uh, for our listeners you'll be hearing this on wednesday march the third um will it be on the website by then or is it in the physical it, copy it should be up it should be up on the website by then yeah okay yeah so if you're listening to this you can you can go read it i highly recommend it it's really really kind of fascinating um to uh uh to read but this piece is focused on two movies from 1938, uh, Marie Antoinette, uh, which is a Norma Shearer, uh, Irving Thalberg uh, collaboration directed by W.S. Van Dyke, and uh, La Marseillaise, uh, which is a Jean Renoir uh, film, also from 1938. And uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about kind of why you chose to write about these two films and, and, and what you found interesting, or what was the impetus for this piece? Um, well, I had watched I had watched Marie Antoinette for this story, mm-hmm. and um, you know I I was watching it because I was profiling a guy named Sidney Gillerock, and he was MGM's chief hairstylist for like thirty or forty years, but he was this really like he had this huge visual impact on movies. He's the he's the guy that got um, Lucille Ball to dye her hair red. He gave mm-hmm. Louise Brooks her page boy haircut. Um, before that was before MGM. Um, he did like all of Elizabeth Taylor's hair, like her, like her wig from Virginia Woolf, 
but also Cleopatra, like all of those stunning looks they have. And so, and he was this guy, I mean, like, I don't know anything about hairstyling, right? Right. <laughs> Nothing. But he came up with these iconic looks again and again and again, right? And all of Marilyn Monroe, all, her, all, her, all of her movies. Wow. Um, and so I ended up watching, Joan Crawford discovered him in New York, right? And so brought him out to, brought him out to Hollywood. And uh, so I ended up watching a lot of his movies, a lot of Garbo movies, he did Garbo's movies. Um, and then I saw Marie Antoinette and he created like, I think it was like hundreds of different wigs for this movie. And so I'm watching it and uh, I don't think it's the best movie he ever worked on. Um, you know, it, it was this big MGM production, but I was thinking it really thinks that yeah, I was I was struck by the way I thought that Marie Antoinette was the real victim of the French Revolution. That she <laughs> was of anybody in France at that time, she's the one with the sad story, right? right. Uh, which it is, it ends up that way. Uh, but then a while later, I was watching Renoir films. And I had never seen La Marseillaise. I, and I actually didn't, under, I didn't know at first it was about the French Revolution. You know, I, I didn't know what it was about. I knew that it was the French national anthem. Right. But when I realized it was a French Revolution film from 1938, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Did they make theirs, you know, same year? And as I knew, I, you know, I, I, I watched... Renoir's and his was the opposite take. The saddest guy, the saddest story in France was actually a bricklayer who right. uh, joins the revolution in Marseille, the city of Marseille, marches to Paris, and you know he's not uh, he's not Robespierre, he's not Marat, he's not part of any royal family. He's this he's this everyman. He's this guy, Omier is his name in the movie, and at this. When we see this battle that he's involved in, he's the first guy killed. He ends up dying in the street. But Renoir treats it as dramatically as the way MGM treated Marie Antoinette's death. Right. And so I just started kind of looking into it. And um, I knew a little bit about Thalberg. And uh, I had just gotten this the uh, Marigal biography of Renoir. That's why I was watching the movie. And so I knew Thalberg was this arch right wing Republican. Like if you see the movie Mank, they kind of show him that way in that movie. Right. right. And uh, then I was realizing that, well, Jean Renoir is a member of the Communist Party. No wonder his movie's so different. And from there, I just started realizing that one of these movies was created by these far right wing. Well, Thalberg's the far right wing guy. Norma Shearer is kind of a centrist Republican, but a far right wing producer who's terrified of another French revolution happening here in America because of the great depression. Right. And then Renoir, who's a communist who wants more of a revolution at the same time. And they're using the French revolution. They're both taking these historical events. And because just like today, when people can talk about the same thing in America, but if you're Republican and you're Democrat, you can talk about the same moment in time and it's unrecognizable. Right. Mm. And their versions of the French Revolution are so divergent. And that was what was really interesting. Um, that, and that, so that's what really got me interested in writing the story. Well, you do a really good job of kind of uh, painting the background of what the American kind of political climate was like in 
the 1930s, you know, and I was wondering if you could expound a little bit upon that, you know, between FDR and, you know, succeeding uh, Hoover and the Great Depression and also the Upton Sinclair uh, gubernatorial campaign, which, you know, again, uh, you know, call back to, to David Fincher's Mank. I was wondering if you could kind of paint the paint the portrait for us of of that that the background and what was American politics, what was the landscape like in the 1930s? Well, in California, where Irving Thalberg was, um, he was watching um, his friend and Louis B. Mayer's friend Herbert Hoover lose this election in 1932. They, they knew he was going to lose. I, I assume everybody knew he was going to lose. Right. Um, I mean, I think Will Rogers said that uh, Herbert Hoover should vote for FDR, too, just to make it unanimous. Right? It was his joke. <laughs> um, so, I mean, Hoover has personally intervened in, in Thalberg's life. He had this big tax fraud case at the time, like $100,000, which was like a million dollars at that time. And so Thalberg is is personally feeling this huge change that's coming in the culture uh, because of the depression. And by the time, by 1932, the depression had really gone from a 1929 recession to being just this endless pit of misery and just a spiraling down with no end in sight. Mm -hmm. And, and so Americans were really thinking of different ways, different governments we should have not a different president, but a different government. And uh, people were promoting fascism pretty openly that we needed a president with like wartime powers, they called it over the economy. William Randolph Hearst um, produced a movie called Gabriel over the White House. Right. That came out the month FDR was elected or, or when he was sworn in the month he was inaugurated um, about the kind of president he wanted. And I believe it's Jonathan Alter's biography of FDR that, uh, revealed that FDR had actually read the script and given him notes on it. Um, I don't think FDR wanted to be a dictator, but I think he wanted the option. Right? <laughs> and, you know, this is what, you know, what kind of a dictator would he be? I mean, you know, you, you had on the one hand people advancing that idea. I mean, Will Rogers was actually a big supporter of Mussolini. Um, and had been since the 1920s. He thought he was he would be great for America. Really? And, I didn't know. Yeah. He, I did not know that either. It. That's nuts. It is. You know, look it up. It's really pathetic. <laughs> um, he he really thought we needed a leader like that in America because at that time Mussolini was not aligned with Hitler, and people thought he was more of a benevolent dictator than he actually was. He had a big PR campaign in America that was sort of selling him as this lovable, lovable lug who's doing the right thing. You know, in the way really that Trump was sold to us at the beginning, um, it didn't last long. You know, we, I right. mean, during the campaign, we kind of really saw what he was right away. But a lot of people wanted to believe differently. And so that the, the other, the flip side of this is, you know, there's the dictator side of it, but there were a lot of leftists in America who wanted a different kind of government. And the far left had, um, was really resurgent in a lot of ways in the 1930s. And that's what really scared Thalberg. And Thalberg saw fascism in Europe. He saw fascism uh, possibly here. You know, the movie Duck Soup is about fascism. Herman Mankiewicz's other great movie. Right. And 
Um, there was a Broadway show that the Gershwins did uh, with George Kaufman and Maury Riskin, two great Marx Brothers writers, uh, about fascism taking over in America. It's interesting in the early 1930s, you see movies and plays about fascism happening here, pro and con, right? And then by the end of the 30s, uh, the same people are making movies against fascism in Europe. Like, we, you know, we saw it, I think, better by the end of the decade for what it really is. And um, so in 1932, you see Thalberg starting to really worry about losing everything. He really thought that the, the Reds were going to take over here. He saw Upton Sinclair in California, who's a writer at MGM. He had sold things to MGM. And he met with Thalberg. He just he was a former socialist and now running as a Democrat. I don't know how close the parallel is to Bernie Sanders or not doing that. But he had this plan, the EPIC program, End Poverty in California, right? And it was about redistributing land uh, to impoverished people in land that wasn't really being used for anything else. So they weren't going to go, you know, find some rich farmer and take a, you know, take all his land away or some you know, agriculture company, but they were starting the process of simply giving land to poor people. Mm -hmm. And that really scared Thalberg. And, uh, you know, he, as you can see in the movie Mank, he was supporting the these fake newsreels that were released in movie theaters at that time that MGM helped make. And the movie, the movie, the newsreels had actors that were supposedly playing Sinclair voters. And they were dressed up as radicals or like just crazy looking people like hobos coming to California because they heard there's free land and free money. And uh, then you'd have this, the, uh, I forget the name of the guy who's running against Sinclair, but uh, his supporters were all these nice people in suits and dresses. Just, you know, we want an American decent government. We want, you know, American values that are in power in, a, in, in, in our governor. And, um, you know, there, so there's this big divide on what would happen. And during, in 1932 or three, that's when Thalberg and his wife, Norma Shearer, who was a huge movie star at the time, just discovered Stefan Zweig's, uh, his biography of Marie Antoinette. He's an Austrian writer and it was about to be translated into English. Norma Shearer really wanted to play Marie Antoinette and Thalberg saw in her story exactly sort of what he feared would happen here. And so that's when they began getting involved in developing this. And you can see, uh, as I show in the piece, uh, you can see the similarities in, in Thalberg's treatment of uh, the Russian Revolution in uh, a movie called Rasputin and the Empress. And then in those Upton Sinclair newsreels, all of them just involve uh, crazy mobs of working people, you know, attacking rich people and taking everything they own. <laughs> and that's what uh, Falberg had a big vested interest in avoiding that scenario. And also, though, in real life, I mean, uh, in 1932, the Bonus Army uh, was in marching in Washington. They were veterans of World War One. They were that because of the Depression, they were asking Congress for their veterans' benefits early. And Congress and the Hoover administration didn't want to do it. And so they began marching on Washington and uh, it ended up in a, in a giant riot outside the Capitol where Americans, American military officers, including Douglas MacArthur and George S. Patton, uh, ended up shooting and killing two veterans, but mainly they routed them with like 
you know, bayonets and tear gas. So there weren't a lot of deaths. There were more deaths at the Capitol in the recent insurrection. And right. um, so it was really happening. I mean, there was real reason to look around and see that the America we'd grown up in, they had grown up in, wasn't going to be the America they were living in in maybe four years. And so that kind of political reality was on Thalberg's mind. He was also, unions were a problem for him at MGF, never had them before, but because of the National Labor Relations Board Act of like 1933, I'm sorry, I shouldn't know the name of that government program, um, but it protected unions, it gave them the right to collectively bargain. And so he was seeing it encroach on MGM as well. Well, let's let's talk about Thalberg a little more specifically and personally. I mean, obviously, those are the the kind of political background he's responding to. But I'm interested because I, um, I don't know. I want to talk about these two kind of different vectors because if you if you read kind of anything about like classic Hollywood or you know um, uh, you know any kind of history of the studio system or whatever, you know, you learn about. Irving Thalberg and his kind of status as like a boy wonder almost. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm interested to hear about him. And specifically you mentioned how he, he is key in shifting the balance of power away from creative talent, you know, like in the era of, you know, Charlie Chaplin and, um, you know, silent, you know, actors or actresses who had become stars and shifting that power uh, to the studio bosses, Louis B. Mayer, you know, uh, Jack Warner, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, but but that uh, combined with his kind of politics that, I mean, you even talk about him defending, I mean, this is a Jewish man who's defending Nazis because he was so anti-communist, you know. Um, yeah, well, he didn't, I mean, he wouldn't defend Nazis, but he preferred he, he thought Nazis were less of a problem than communism taking hold here. Sure, sure. I mean, he, he didn't uh, in any way uh, really support or defend their actions, but he uh, was much more worried about communism here. And I think it was uh, not realistic that that was going to be a problem here. And maybe that's the benefit of hindsight because he, as I say, he saw MGM forced to deal with unions. And in the 1920s, his career leading up to that moment, there were no unions in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And by the time he was 23, he was born in 1899. By the time he was 23, he was, he was a top executive at Universal. And he was decisive. He saw a lot, through a lot of the nonsense that people argue about in a movie studio. He had a, you know, a young person's uh, sort of finger on the pulse of American pop culture mm. that a lot of these older guys didn't have. And he grew very successful very young. I mean, 23 is nuts. It's almost like you know when you hear about uh, somebody like Phil Spector, they're very young people making it in the music business really young, sort of when, when rock music uh, came up. Right. And he's kind of like, I see him kind of like that because the, the Louis V. Mayers and the, the Carl Lemleys and the Adolf Zuckers were older men uh, and they weren't, I don't think they were as attuned to, you know, what kids were into, what, what young people were doing, what a lot of the audience wanted at that time. And Thalberg really was. I mean, they were very good at their jobs. They were not, they were not struggling, but he was 
great at it. I mean, he had an edge they didn't have. But in, and I believe it was 1923, uh, Eric von Stroheim had, uh, had made Blind Husbands. He'd written and directed Blind Husbands. And he was working at Universal. It had a huge hit with that. And, you know, he got into this big dispute with Thalberg because von Stroheim didn't care about the money. Yeah. It was about getting it right. And he's written up sometimes as this extravagant director who was, you know, spending money on making sure that all the period costumes were there exactly right and the sets were huge and lavish. But I tend to think part of that, I mean, it, two things, two other things matter in this. One is he was planning huge movies. Like I just watched Foolish Wives for this and it's about a two hour and 20 minute movie. Uh-huh. And apparently that's only two thirds of the movie and the rest of it's just gone. You know, so he was planning like three, four, uh, I mean, four hour movies then. And his, you know, his movie Greed was planned to be over 10 hours. Oh, wow. And he, yeah, he was serious and he shot these movies. And so that money he was spending wasn't, you know, as they say, it gets written off as like sort of esoteric and, um, you know, obsessive about things that aren't that important. But um, when you're shooting a 10 hour movie, it costs a lot of money. And yeah, I mean, I, that, like, I can't even begin to, to figure out how much that would cost even back then. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, like, we today, I mean, you know, you have Scott Frank making Queen's Gambit for Netflix. That's a seven hour movie. He wrote it like a movie. It's not really written like a, a TV show. That's what he was thinking. Of. You know, think of Abel Gantz making his Napoleon movie, right? His biopic of Napoleon, which I think we have about five hours of it. Uh, and it was meant to be a lot longer. So these guys, uh, they were thinking in epic terms. And so Thalberg, you know, he had a small studio to run. Universal is not a big studio. And von Stroheim had no regard for what Thalberg wanted or, or was saying. And I don't, Thalberg didn't seem to have a creative concern with von Stroheim. It was the money. And it was on a movie called Merry-Go-Round that von Stroheim showed up to the set and it was gone. I mean, Thalberg just pulled the plug. And, you know, they had personal confrontations over it. Uh, von Stroheim said something to the effect of, if you weren't my superior, I'd punch you. And Thalberg <laughs> just said, don't let that stop you. you know? And so Thalberg didn't care. I mean, you know, he wanted a great movie. He was a man who wanted to be a producer of great movies. But he wasn't going to do that. And he wasn't going to sink a whole studio, uh, which he thought von Stroheim was risking. And so he just tossed them aside and took his movies away from him and recut them. And this was, you know, if it happened to any other director, maybe a B-list director or something, okay. But von Stroheim was a hit director. He was an auteur at that time. It was like taking a movie away from Chaplin or Griffith, you know? Mm. And so it was a big deal when he did that. And he was only 23. And people like David Selznick who were around back then and Ruben Mamoulian, the great director, he just said, you know, when he did that, it was like the whole game shifted away from the directors and the auteurs. Wow. And it really set a precedent, like after that with American movies, that directors were fighting within the studio system. They weren't using the studio system to make a movie. 
Yeah, they were working with in that factory. And that was, you know, they credit it to Thalberg. And it's a huge, just, you know, sort of change of course for the American film industry. Um, that's, which, I, I just, I just want to jump in and say that's, that's just incredible to, um, and I'd never heard that story before. I mean, you know, you hear, you hear it in kind of vague terms, you know, like, oh, the, you know, von Stroheim, you know, was, um, you know, notoriously tough to work with or whatever. And, 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 and he was a troubled director or whatever, but to like locate, um, locate it to that specific power grab of uh, Thalberg, you know, grabbing power away from, you know, this kind of hit auteur, the, the, the successor of D.W. Griffith, you know, Eric von Stroheim. And I don't know, to locate it in that specific moment is really, really fascinating. I never heard that before. Yeah, what was new for me when reading about him was I'd known he'd made these movies. I'd seen some of them like Greed. And, you know, we all know him from Sunset Boulevard. Mm. He plays the butler in Gloria Swanson's house. And what I didn't understand about him, you know, he wasn't just sort of a kooky director from back then. He wasn't just sort of this esoteric, eccentric, uh, you know, guy wearing a monocle and walking around, you know, like a Prussian guardsman or something from the <laughs> 1890s, which is how they paint him. He was, I mean, regarded as a great artist, you know, he was hugely successful. You know, it was taking a movie away from a, a great artist. That's how it was seen at that time. So, and at that time, now this is one of the reasons I found the story so interesting, is that Stahlberg's just taking these movies away and cutting them up like Foolish Wives, you know, and Mary Garand. In France, uh, Jean Renoir is a veteran of World War I. He's sort of immersing himself in silent film after the war. And he sees Foolish Wives, and he's just like knocked out. He sees it 10 times. Mm. And he, he knew he wanted to make movies, you know, and he'd grown up around art, you know, an artist like his father, you know, uh, Pierre Renoir. Uh, was it, it, and he, he saw Van Stroheim's film and it just changed everything he thought about art and movies. And, you know, he would say over the years, he came to regard Von Stroheim as a kind of God mm. and his real, Von Stroheim's real devotees, uh, you know, consider it sort of like being in a cult. <laughs> I mean, 50, was it like, yeah, because 50 years later, Renoir was writing a letter to a, a Herman Weinberg who wrote a, a book about von Stroheim in the early 1970s. And he kept describing it, saying, You're the high priest now of our cult. You, you're it. You're the leader. And it's these people who are, who are grabbed by von Stroheim. Uh, with such passion and he was so influential. Eisenstein as well, apparently. And to think, you know, this so early on, the way Thalberg's just like, this guy's not gonna make me money, kick him aside, we'll just get this other guy in and uh, we'll, you know, get another guy with a monocle and, and that's fine. And, <laughs> you know, and, and Renoir was just like, uh, discovered, you know, his path in a way. I mean, he was hugely influential on Renoir. Of course he became his own artist, but, that that Thalberg and, and Renoir were so opposite, were such opposite numbers in as early as like 1923, their whole sensibilities, and that they would come together, come not together, but like 15 years later, their movies would appear in 1938. 
you know, is just as diametrically opposed. Well, let's let's cross the Atlantic a little bit and let's 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 jump into Renoir and uh, uh, specifically, I guess, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kind of uh, background in France and Europe, uh, the political situation, which um, uh, was even more volatile, it seems like, than it was in the United States at the time uh, and kind of Renoir's place in that uh, in that context in the in the 1930s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kind of political context that the Renoir was working within. Yeah, right. Renoir was uh, politically leftist. And in the early 1930s, he was becoming known in France and, and slowly internationally uh, as a director of movies like Wadu, Saved from Drowning, and uh, The Crimes of Monsieur Lang, or the, and The Lower Depths, which are very class conscious movies, mm-hmm. comedies, dramas. But that's the issue that's interesting to him. And uh France at that time is actually doing something that you know seems like a, a miracle in politics was just uniting the different factions of the left right <laughs> to vote together <laughs> and uh I don't know what you know they put together what they called the popular front and they made Leon Bloom the prime minister of France and uh, this was uh, in 1936, I believe. And, you know, Renoir also made films. You know, Thalberg made films to run against Sinclair. Well, uh, Renoir made films for uh, the party. And they were also, you know, sort of staged with uh, actors, but also using documentary footage. But unlike Thalberg, the Communist Party and Renoir were very public about this. They weren't trying to fool anybody. And as this leftist government is coming together in France, all around them are fascist governments. Um, There's Italy, and then there is um, Germany, and then they're watching the the civil war in Spain. And so Renoir is getting very nervous about fascism taking over you know, around him and possibly in France. And he's watching the Germans, uh, you know, rearm and militarize. Uh And he's getting very nervous. And he's as nervous about Germany as Thalberg is about communists. And, you know, for him in France, his party's doing well. But there's a real danger right next door to them. And so uh, he starts thinking about after... Uh, his movie Grand Illusion came out. He became uh, an international success. He was uh, known around the world as a great auteur. He won, I believe, the New York Film Critics Circle Award that year for his film. Or maybe, um, I, sorry, the, it's, it's in the article. I, I, he was definitely nominated, but I think he won. Uh-huh. And he sort of attained a box office clout and fame uh, that he had never had before. And so he decided to use it to make his uh, epic about the French Revolution. And he began, he didn't have a biography. He, would, uh, he didn't uh, find a book or a history that he was going to use. He was going to come up with a, a sort of an historical epic. And he thought of actors like Jean Gabin or bringing von Stroheim back you know, to play different historical figures. But he got bored with that idea. Because that's usually what happens in historical epics and biopics. You find a movie star or somebody to play 
you know, Harry Truman or, um, you know, Winston Churchill or somebody, and you make this movie about this epic personality in our history and the epic events all around him. And he got more and more interested, not in that, but in trying to research day-to-day life in France at that time. And he starts, you know, he and his researchers and his writers, they start reading courtroom transcripts. They start reading uh, club, you know, recordings of meetings of clubs and organizations. They try to get the feel for people's voices. Uh, They talk a lot about food in the film because he wanted to get a sense of what people were eating at that time and you know how they dressed what their hair was like and he he grew less and less interested in casting movie stars in the movie and began doing what we would call a people's history of the revolution so while Thalberg and Norma Shearer are thinking of Marie Antoinette uh, from the palace point of view he's thinking of the point of view of bricklayers and clerks uh, the movie opens with a man who is uh, arrested for poaching on, uh, on uh, an aristocrat's uh, land, and he's sentenced to death for uh, poaching. I think he caught a pigeon, or, or not a pigeon, uh, a pheasant. A pheasant, yeah. Yeah, it's a pheasant. And he's sentenced to death, and he escapes uh, the courtroom. Uh, he's helped by someone in the courtroom and he's, he escapes and runs into the hills where he meets uh, a few other people who have also escaped uh, because you can't live like a human being in France at that time as a subject of the king. And, you know, he, Renoir wants to show this idea uh, gaining force in France at that time, the idea that you're a citizen with rights, you're not a subject of the king to only serve the king. And so what he began, what he got more and more interested in is telling the story of this uh, revolutionary idea taking hold in the people of France. And the movie's called La Marseille, La Marseillaise, because as these characters in Marseille march to Paris, that becomes their marching song. And it's about this revolution gathering after the fall of the Bastille and it going to France. And, or not going to France, going to Paris. And, you know, he wanted, he kept all the big battles pretty much off screen. He kept all the big personalities, the, you know, the great men of history, Robespierre, they don't appear in it. And instead, you'll see a character going off to hear Robespierre speak at the Jacobin Club and then come back, you know, all excited or, you know, that um, you see the impact of these battles and these events on these everyday people changing their lives. Sort of like the way we watch the news, you know, and these economic events with the, you know, or the pandemic or, right. you know, some battle somewhere. We're not really there. Well, we're here for the pandemic, but we're not really <laughs> there at these big events and it affects our lives still, you know, it reaches and that, that's what he wanted to show. And Beaumier is this is this is a bricklayer, and that's kind of the central figure of the movie. You watch this guy; he's very funny, uh, and he's 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 not so worried about Robespierre. He's sort of like the boots he has to march in are terrible; they're too tight. He right. doesn't like Mar- La Marseillaise. He thinks it's too jocular, and it's an annoying song. You know that he just gets <laughs> on his nerves to hear again and again. And he's a funny character, and. Um, 
you know, Renoir focuses on this man's life as as the center of the revolution, and he doesn't focus on the terror, which most movies about the French Revolution can't wait to get to the guillotines. Right. You know, they can't wait to show you that. And Renoir didn't want to do that, you know, and he, because he saw the violence of France didn't begin there. He saw it as cyclical, you know, when his characters yeah. are in the hills escaping the, these this, the, the tyrants they live under, they see a fire in the distance and they know that a, 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 a marquis's uh, chateau is burning and they know their friends and neighbors did it. And but they say, you know, we the, the aristocracy made us in their image. You know, we we've learned their bad habits right? to be this violent. They don't like it either. But the violence is something that's always a part of it. But Renoir doesn't want to get to that gory moment. You know, the thing that in Thalberg and Norma Shearer's movie, it's leading up to the terror, right? Right. Um, what, what Renoir wants to focus on is the lasting impact of the revolution, which is this idea that the, the rights of man and that you're a citizen, which did outlast the violence. You know, he's right about that. Right. And... Um, Beaumier's life is really what he shows during the revolution. And, you know, because of that, I think with La Marseillaise, it's a really interesting movie, but it does kind of uh, lack like the, the, the great dramatic moment that some great actor would bring to those movies, so the historical, uh, the historical epic. But it's still a fascinating movie to watch when you consider how he told it. He did cast his brother, Pierre, as Louis the Sixteenth, and Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette do appear in the movie, but they are uh, really supporting characters in history. Right, and that's something he wanted to show. He, and he didn't cast them. This is very interesting too. Like Thalberg and Norma Shearer, he cast them actually as sympathetic figures. They're actually not, you know, despots. What Renoir wanted to point is what Renoir wanted to do is kind of depersonalize the revolution. It's not about these two people. This revolution, this philosophical evolution in human beings is coming, whether these people are cruel, evil, you know, uh, tyrants, or they're like they are in the movie. They're just kind of oblivious to how cruel their system is. Right. And so his brother is actually kind of, you know, uh, Pierre is actually kind of a likable guy. And this is, I know in your episode of when you talked about Jean Renoir, you brought up Renoir's sort of philosophy about characters. Everybody has their reasons, mm. you know? So everybody in the movie is uh, moving from their own motivations. And that's what his Marie Antoinette and his, uh, his Louis do. They're not, um, they don't hate the working people. They don't, you know, want to, they don't want to crush them, you know? But they don't get what their system is, and they, they don't understand they're not entitled to that. Right. And this, this, them coming to that rev, that realization is really the end of this movie for them. But it's not about them getting killed; it's about them realizing it's over. You know, because that's the big point for Renoir. Right. Right. You know, I, 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 I think you do a really good job of, of kind of. Um, showing the kind of two, you know, the two opposing, you know, the, the, the businessman, you know, Irving Thalberg and the artist, you know, Jean Renoir, and they're kind of, um, 
you know, two differing, you know, portraits, but there's a, there's a third, uh, a third wheel uh, in here kind of, and that's uh, none other than, you know, Norma Shearer, uh, who, you know, you mentioned had to kind of take over production of the movie after Thalberg's death. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about her, um, kind of her relationship with Thalberg and how she kind of um, finished this movie. I was particularly interested in, uh, uh, your characterization of uh, W.S. Van Dyke, who uh, <laughs> apparently drank a lot of gin on set and was basically, uh, uh, what, what do they call him, One Take Willie or something? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, one, <laughs> one, take Woody. one Woody. Take Woody. Woody. Right. Yeah, who, by the way, he wasn't like a drunk on set or anything, but he did like to drink. And um, <laughs> he's his most famous film by far is The Thin Man right? Uh, with William Powell and Myrtle. He... Perfect writer for Dashiell Hammett, or excuse me, perfect director for Dashiell Hammett and those two actors. And when Thalberg died in 1936, he was always sickly. He had grown up very weak. Nobody thought he would live to be 20 years old. I mean, he's, you know, remarkable for what they kind of uh, told him his future would be and for what he accomplished. Um, I mean, we're talking about his politics here, but he had a huge impact on the movies. I mean, for everything. You know, he's the villain of Eric von Stroheim's life, but he also backed Lon Chaney completely. Loved Lon Chaney, brought mm-hmm. Garbo to America, really, and um, or made her, you know, supported her completely at MGM when someone like Louis B. Mayer wanted to Americanize her. You know, and right. he, when he saw a great artist he, that worked within his factory system, he really did back them. Mm. And um, there are great careers at MGM because he saw that. And, you know, Norma Shearer is one of them. She came to New York in 1920, and she wanted to, she had big dreams of being an actress. Uh, she went to see Florence Ziegfeld of the Ziegfeld Follies, and he took one look at her and told her, according to her, literally told her, you're a dog. You're never going to make it. <laughs> you know? Imagine that. <laughs> you know? But Norma Shearer was, if nothing else, steely and tough. And she went, she got a job as an extra in a D.W. Griffith movie. Uh, she made sure to stand under a, a, a light, a sort of a spotlight on the stage for a little while. So Griffith would finally notice her. And um, when he, while talking to her, he told, she told him that she wanted to be a movie. So she wanted to be a great actor. And he looked her, looked her in the eyes and said, You'll never make it with blue eyes. They always show up blank on a screen. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so the two biggest names in show business telling you to quit. Uh, but she got a part in a movie that later that year called The Steelers. And Louis B. Mayer and Irving, uh, it was Mayer who saw her first and, you know, brought her in. Uh, and, or g- gave her work. Or I don't, You know, I'm sorry. I can't remember this detail, but. She got more work out of that from either Mayer or Thalberg. And they really began to see an actress there. Right. And she started to make her name in silent films and without Thalberg. And eventually, you know, they fell in love and got married. And then once they were married, I think if I remember the timing correctly, he starts to put her, she's in like fun comedies. She's in like Broadway after dark and stuff like that. Like, you know, very silly kind of flapper uh, kind of movies, but she's also in a great movie uh, called He Who Gets Slapped. Mm. That's the Lon Chaney movie. Um, and uh, once they're married, he starts putting her in sort of prestige 
in the, in the late twenties, they're married. He starts putting her in prestige kind of films because he was always a guy, you know, who wanted that kind of uh, respectability and prestige productions and, you right. know, uh, to be esteemed by the critics and make the movies the equal of Broadway and that sort of thing. And he puts her in Noel Coward movies like Private Lives and she's in uh, Eugene O'Neill adaptation. And um, she puts together a really amazing career. I mean, she's uh, nominated for, for uh, five or six Oscars. She wins one for a movie called The Divorcee. And Great movie. She's the real. She yeah. She's the real deal. I mean, she's she is a movie star, but she's called the queen of a lot because she's married to Irving Thalberg. By this time, MGM has become a studio. Thalberg has uh, followed Mayer to this giant super studio they created, and other actors on the lot like Joan Crawford uh, really see that she's getting a preference of directors the best directors when she wants them, the best writers uh, and the best, the best projects, you know? And uh, I mentioned Sidney Jilleroff earlier. He was a, some dispute between Joan Crawford and Norma Shearer because Crawford discovered him in New York, brings him out to MGM and suddenly Norma Shearer wants him to do her hair. Right. Right. And Crawford is like, you know, this was one of the many uh, facets of the rivalry but it's another sort of link to all these stories for me. And, but Shearer really uh, establishes a great career, but Thalberg dies in 1936 and he was only 36 years old or 37 years old at the time. Yeah. And it was, you know, a huge shock to the, the studio because he'd been so important to it. He'd been sort of their, the um, chief production officer until 1932 when he had a heart attack. Then Mayer and Nick Skank, who ran the studio, demoted him because they're worried about his health, but he's also becoming a very powerful guy they couldn't really control as their studio boss. This was right. an opportunity to say, now you're a studio producer, right? And he accepted it, and it was still an incredibly you know, powerful position to make movies. He eventually accepted it, and one of the first projects he bought was Stefan Zweig's book for, of Marie Antoinette for Norma Shearer. Well, they developed the script for years uh, with one of Shearer's favorite writers, uh, Claudine West, a great screenwriter, a playwright, a British novelist and playwright. And Thalberg dies and Shearer finds herself in a position she's never been in, which is Thalberg is gone. And now the studio bosses want to rewrite his deals. He had percentage, profit percentage deals on movies that he produced. And they felt like he's gone, you know, so you shouldn't get that percentage on movies that, are, uh, that uh, he's not around to collect for, which is absurd. I mean, you make a deal right. uh, for those percentages, obviously it goes to you, your, your family, your, your estate. And she just said, okay, I quit, you know, because she was going to get her lawyers and fight them. And again, this is the very steely side of Norma Shearer that people hadn't seen for a while. Mm. And she gets her lawyers and she knows, she knows that MGM and her husband, uh, her late husband had invested like $400,000 in Marie Antoinette. It was gonna be a huge movie. I mean, until Dawn with the Wind came along, it was gonna be like the biggest you know, prestige production MGM had done. So right. she walks out knowing 
they're on the hook for that. So as she's mourning her husband, there's this long period of, of uh, stalemate between her and Louis B. Mayer in the studio. And people who, who knew her at the time were just surprised just how tough she was and how she, she could not be talked out of this. She knew what was hers and what wasn't. And what finally seems to have done it was that David Oselznik was making Gollop a win. And he made it public that he wanted Norma Shearer to play uh, Scarlett O'Hara. Right. And Shearer famously said she, you know, read, the, you know, what he wanted to do. And she said, basically, I'd rather play Red Butler, to be honest. <laughs> that movie, she wasn't that interested in doing it when she knew she really wanted to play Marie Antoinette and she had that movie to do. When it became clear that she may be leaving MGM, she was gone from MGM, that she could go do this movie with Selznick. Nick Skank, who was really Skank, you want to call him Nick Skank? Nick Skank was <laughs> Mayor's boss and he told, he told Mayor, make the deal. And so they allowed Shearer to have the deal of Thalberg's movies produced as the original contract was through 1938. But this is where Woody Van Dyke comes in because Thalberg was gone, right? And so they wanted, everybody wants to honor Thalberg and of course, and he contributed so much to the studio, but Louis B. Mayer is looking at this huge, huge production. And Sure wanted Sidney Franklin, who had directed her in, uh, in several big movies and was her preferred director. But he, you know, Mayer knew, just understood a basic fact. Thalberg, the genius, is no longer with us. The reason they spent so much money on that movie was her, yes, but because he was the guy behind it. You know, it wasn't just him demanding the money. MGM trusted Thalberg to really deliver a huge hit with this. And he was great. Right. And so Mayer had a point here that the 90-day shooting schedule that Sidney Franklin wanted uh, was too much. And, you know, they had Woody Van Dyke on the line. One take Woody. And he said he could do it in two-thirds of the time, which was true. Uh, but <laughs> he was a real character. He'd been a U.S. Marine done a lot of things and he you know they trusted him too because he had launched two big franchises for mgm the thin man series and the tarzan series starting johnny weissmuller right so the thin man tarzan marie antoinette right so you see why norma sure might be a little leery about this <laughs> right this is not his kind of movie Right. And um, not the way she's usually working, because the way Van Dyke worked with his actors, he rehearsed them, rehearsed them, rehearsed them, and then shoots the scene. And with the great actors he had, like William Powell and Myrna Lloyd, like for The Thin Man, he got the scene and they were great. He didn't have to do a lot more. So that's the way he liked to work. And he also had it in his contract, besides, you know, slipping gin in all during the day that he gets to leave the set at 6 p.m. no matter what. He's directed dozens <laughs> of movies for MGM. He's the kind of director that can say, quit in time, I'm going home. Right. And walk off the set. And so to pick up where he leaves off, they bring in Jacques Tournier, who had not made his name yet doing cat, uh, the cat people or out of the past yet in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. 
you know, who had gone to a great career. And they also had Julien de Villiers, who in a couple of years would direct his own. He was also, he'd already an established director in France, but he would direct Pepe Lamoco, which is his great crime movie. Yeah. And so you've got these other two directors coming in, right? And sure is also reading the scripts that, that Thalberg and preparing for her. She didn't want to play the character the way he had had it written. You know, he had seen that these, like the great leaders uh, uh, of history who've fallen, uh, like the czar, who he, you know, in his uh, Rasputin and the Empress movie, the czar had fallen and Marie Antoinette and her uh, husband Louis the Sixteenth, their their uh, reign ended, and he saw this sort of story that he liked to tell: great leaders falling through their own their own mistakes, their own follies, but taking their demise with great dignity. Right. right? Um, it was Charles MacArthur who was working on the Rasputin and the Empress who said that basically here is this here's Thalberg asking him, you know, a Jewish man asking him to write the czar and and his empress is sort of Mr. and Mrs. Hoover. Like, you know, <laughs> losing his <laughs> And so that was still like the guiding idea of Marie Antoinette. Norma Shira was not going to do that. She's not going to play Marie Antoinette as a Polish woman. Because historically it was true that Marie Antoinette was an active ruler in France. Right. Yeah, she wasn't, she's famous, you know, we know this apocryphal line where she said, let them eat cake. And that she did, she was a very young queen, she did spend a lot of money extravagantly. And the French people never forgot it. You know, while they're starving, she's living in these, you know, in Versailles and buying expensive jewels. So right. that, that damaged her reputation from the, the beginning. But she wasn't going to play her foolish and she wasn't going to play her as uh, sort of a tyrant. And she began having the script rewritten as to the woman she saw in these history books. She began reading court memoirs of the day. She began uh, really learning the customs of the day, the, learning the minuet, learning the court, uh, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the behavior at court, like how it really was through the history books. So she, like Renoir, is actually really researching what the period was like. And, you know, She's got these three directors, let's say two and a half, because I don't think Julian de Vivier really uh, may have done that much, but she doesn't have a consistent directorial voice. Mm. And she starts directing the actors. She starts, you know, Joseph Schildkraut is one of the actors I quote in the story saying, she really ran the show because whether Van Dyke was there or not, she was coaching all of the actors on how to react to her character, right? The right. character she's redesigned, the character she is, how she wants this cast to work with her. And she's also working with William Daniels, who is a great cinematographer back then, on how to light her, how to shoot her, because she knows at this point how she looks good on screen. Right. You know, better than anybody. And Schildkraut just said she's running the show. This is her movie. And she really is the auteur of that film. Right, and uh, she pulls the whole studio, all of the elements of that production in the studio together to make it. And she's, you know, I think she gets discounted um, in a way because she, she was just wasn't considered 
uh, because she spent most of her time as her career as an actor with Irving Thalberg there, I think people thought that her career was all him after a certain point, and it really wasn't. Um, you know, she's the one who chose to do a lot of the movies that she did. He's the one that could make it possible. Right. You know, and so uh, she really becomes the, the dominant voice of Marie Antoinette. And so the, that movie, her movie comes out in 1938. And then Renoir's movie comes out in 1938. And they could not be in more like uh, in, a, in a fiercer political opposition. You know? Well, and, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, you, you know, that's um, like we've we've taken up quite a bit of your time, uh, but uh, I, I just want to wrap up, if I could, by kind of talking about like, how do we feel about the movies themselves um, as far as just kind of like watching them from like a, a quality or like what stood out? And I'm wondering if you can um if you can separate because <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know i feel like if i was if i knew in the, as much about these movies as you did or as you do i feel like i wouldn't be able to um kind of step back and appreciate them as just movies anymore but but do you do you think uh, these movies hold up you know where do you feel like lamarcier's um you know kind of fits in with the is this top tier renoir is a second tier renoir and um you know i know pauline kale mentioned that she thought marie antoinette was a a bore, um, but I'm well, interested was, if you could talk uh, about that, she, just the quality and watchability of these movies, you know, 70 yeah. years later. Well, Marie Antoinette called it a resplendent bore. I thought oh, right. great because there's so much. <laughs> um, there's some people who really like Marie Antoinette. Uh, it, I would say of La Marseillaise and Marie Antoinette, uh, these are not bad movies, but they're not the best that either one of these people could do. Mm-hmm. And um, Marie Antoinette, it's like there's this glow about it from beginning to end because of William Daniels and how Norma Shearer wanted that character portrayed. And it's really uh, a story about this woman sort of coming to terms too late with being a queen. Right. And, you know, that's what she really didn't understand uh, until too late uh, what was going on in France. And she really doesn't uh, until, you know, again, she's not repentant for what she did, but it's towards the end that she really realizes that she has to take over for her ineffective husband as in real life. Right. You know, she had powerful cutthroat guys against her and she had guys who were just not able to do the job for her or wouldn't, like Woody Van Dyke walking off the set every day at six. Um, <laughs> and so what I find interesting about it is if you know Norma Shearer's life, it really reflects it. Hmm. It's almost like it doesn't, you know, is it a great historical film? Is it a great history on film? I would say no. But is it her? Yeah. You know, it's actually right. this, this giant epic personal film from Norma Shearer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that, in that in that sense I regard it as very interesting. Yeah, that is um that adds a completely new layer to it that I mean it would not be apparent um unless you knew about Norma Shearer. And that 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 makes it really interesting to me. Um John, what about you? Just strictly from like a quality perspective, what uh what do you think about these two movies? I mean I <laughs> I think that, uh, 
you know, you have big Hollywood spectacle and then you have someone with an entirely different perspective, not just on the world, but on how they want to portray these events. And Mm. they were so interesting to watch because obviously I know I can't even say I know a fraction of what of what, you know, um, been about these films. That's why this has been incredibly fascinating. But just watching them as someone who is not nearly as informed, um, that much was was interesting to witness because it really is it's I, I took it as like you have one movie that represents, you know, the royalty. Well, it's big. It's it's expensive. It's it's just so grand. And then you have this other one that like represents the the poorer people. Well, the the, the other class to where it's like, yeah, this is taking place on the streets. It's much more of like a gorilla type of of filmmaking. And um I don't know. I thought I thought they fit very well. Yeah, on, and and in the streets of Paris, you know, on the streets where some of these things happen, you know, in America right. we can't really conceive of that because we don't have a country that old. Um, uh, but you know, Renoir, even it's it's in a way it's deceptive because uh, it's in uh, this film of you know this uh, people's history. It's this uh, every man. Uh, story of history, but it was also very expensive. I mean, he couldn't shoot that movie cheap. He tried to get union funding. He got Communist Party funding, I think, but it just couldn't be done. And so he had to go to his uh, producers for Grand Illusion now that he was a world-famous director and raise money that way, too. Right. And, See, and, so, and, and I'm sorry, you can go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that, you know, it it is sort of uh, from the street. It is shot like guerrilla filming. Like you say, it's in the streets. There were no, he had sets built for, I, I believe, uh, some scenes of it, but, uh, or he had to, but he really is shooting and watching these people march through France. And he is uh, showing as best he can what it must have looked like, you know? And so yeah. it is a completely different feel, but it costs a lot of money. And um, one thing I think Thalberg would have liked about it is that because of Renoir's connections with the unions and the Communist Party, he got all his extras to work for free, and the unions were cool with it. So Thalberg would have liked that much of his money, <laughs> I think, right? Um, but like with Renoir, his other movies aren't like this. You know, it's right. I think it's kind of unique in his his uh, body of work because. There is no Sean Gabon. You know, there right. is no star to center the story on. And it's not structured like uh, the usual biopic. It's not done as uh, a drama like Grand Illusion, uh, where, you know, you're, you're watching, which is also, by the way, it's, it's really an, a story of an idea of an, aristoc- an aristocracy crumbling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I don't think it was lost on Renoir that the aristocracy hadn't completely disappeared because his next movie was Rolls of the Game, um, which also opens with a guy who's arrested for poaching. <laughs> so it's still going on. But it's it's a really interesting film because he is it, it is such a, a innovative way and it's such a radically different way to look at historical epics. I hesitate to say that he was the first to ever do it because I think of, you know, some of the Russian films from the 20s, like Eisenstein's 
mm. you know, um, maybe like Battleship Potemkin, um, because these those movies also were, you know, Alexander Nevsky is about a really, you know, a great figure of Russian history. Right. But uh, I, Battleship Potemkin and isn't really a film about if i remember it correctly it's it's really not a film about lenin or anything like that or any figure like that so this was kind of a new kind of a left-wing take on history and um i think it's you know historically important for that reason i think maybe eisenstein's october uh maybe the closest um the closest parallel to this because it's about a notable event. Um, obviously the October, you know, revolution. Um, so maybe that might be the closest thing to come before this, but again, you're talking about a completely different, a completely different cinematic language. I mean, that, that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, doesn't resemble, um, you know, Renoir's at all, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think this may be, you know, second tier Renoir, but, uh, just barely, I was kind of blown away by just how good this was and how, um, I don't know. I, I need to watch the rest of Renoir's uh, lesser known works because I think even the lesser known ones are, are incredible. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, there's, there's always something, always something in his movies where you're like you didn't expect or he never conceived of. Right. You know, in right. any other movie. Yeah, I mean, he's um, a master. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big, there's a big crane shot he does of, all the all the people marching and they're singing La Marseillaise, and it's as uh, you remember that shot where they're all outside mm-hmm. and it's covering them. It's like two, oh, I think it's almost two minutes, but it's as moving as when they sing it in Casablanca, right? You know, so Baumier's wrong. It's a really good song. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I I, I appreciate uh, Ben. I appreciate you um, setting you know setting yourself up for a sequel uh, to this piece because you talk about um, Shearer making Idiot's Delight and then, of course, Renoir making Rules of the Game. And I think uh, I think you set yourself up for a sequel, man. I think a piece comparing those two movies might be uh, might be in the future for you, you know? Yeah, that's, that's interesting, too, because as uh, radically opposed as their politics were at the beginning of the 1930s, you know, by 1939... Uh, when those movies come out, was Idiots the Light? I think it's 1938. But their next, their next two movies uh, are both about uh, wealthy aristocrats and people just not paying attention to the World War. Right. And uh, Idiots the Light was written by an FDR speechwriter who later became an FDR speechwriter, Robert Sherwood. And you know, Renoir was looking at France and just like, as he put it, you know, uh, famous line from French history is like we're dancing on a volcano. Mm. So don't, you don't see what's coming. Right. And she felt the same way. It's like, if, because partisan politics disappeared and economic politics, which is really what their politics were about, Renoir and the Thalbergs, all of it disappears when you have an existential threat like fascism. Mm. Right. You know, and that's what, that's what they had to address. So, but yeah, well, ben... those two would be interesting too. Hey, uh, look, you know, you're, uh, we, we loved having you on and we'll, uh, we'll, when you write this next piece about these two movies, I'll be the first to read it, man. It'd be great uh, oh, thank you. to compare those. Yeah. Two. Cause, cause on this podcast, we, we make it pretty clear that we, 
we love old cinema, love old Hollywood, and we've done quite a few episodes with with some French directors and old Hollywood directors. But that was so fascinating hearing about that. It was just it was. I know our listeners are going to love that too because there was so much interesting information, and uh, I think it really is going to make us view these film these two films differently. Having that as like the backdrop of what was going on. So yeah, thanks a lot. That was great. Yeah, well, and you, and thanks for having me. It was writing it like opened a whole, so many doors of filmmaking and uh, filmmakers and history that I hadn't really thought much about. So it was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it was great. And for our listeners out there, go, uh, we'll, we'll link to it, of course, in the show notes. Um, but yeah, be sure and uh, be sure and check out Ben's piece in the baffler. Um, give him, give him ben. some of those, some of those sweet, sweet, uh, uh, what do they call them? Click uh, page views or something? Page views. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give yeah, him some. Definitely. Give him some of those sweet page views from the. We'll try to give you the silver screen video bump. Um, yeah, my, my many thanks to the Alfred too because I've been writing there for a long time. Uh, yeah. Off and on, off and on, but it's been a great home to write stuff like this. Hey Ben, it was great uh, gr- talking about this, and uh, great to have you on. We'd love to have you back, man. Cool. Thank you very much. I love doing it. All right. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Ben.